0: Arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis, in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane, in ten bulky gunny sacks, are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Hey there! What's all that shooting about? We got him, Sheriff! Sheriff, everything's been attended to. What are you talking about? Kincaid's murderers. We got all three of them. And we hung them too, Sheriff. Ah! Larry Kincaid's not dead. (laughs) Not dead? But we just... Well, I just left Larry Kincaid with the doctor at Pike's Hole. Caught to tell us who shot him, too. But, Sheriff, they had Larry's cattle down there. They even had his gun. Give me that badge. Mr. Davies, I know you well enough to know that you didn't have anything to do with this. I'm depending on you to tell me who did. All but seven. God better have mercy on you. You won't get any from me. All right, let's go. In my version of the Old West type hanging, it's Jake McBride who puts an end to the attempted hanging of Dan Dalton, who was found near Dunbar's ranch where Dunbar was murdered. Dalton was brought back into Brinson and put in a cell in McBride's jail. This is all about the masses who might want murderous justice without having the facts. I have to go back to a book, The Oxbow Incident by Walter Van Tilburg Clark, where a posse finds three men sleeping and they're thought to have taken some stolen cattle. What happens is that three men do get lynched and then the other men, all of them, come back to town. They inform the sheriff that they have hanged Lawrence Kincaid's murderers, but the sheriff tells them something else i thought this was very important to put this this scene in and to reflect back on the oxbow incident especially in the old west where there weren't a lot of judges around they came periodically where there was open spaces in what they call frontier justice everybody is susceptible to this type of frontier justice it's always a good idea to get the facts before punishing somebody whether it's by death or by jail cell On a lighter note, I have Albie as the sidekick to Marshal Jake McBride. Albie is just sort of one of those hangerabouts around town. A little bit strange, a little bit odd, with a weird voice. And provides humor to the story. The townspeople have simple moral values. Again, it's getting down to the basic things. Like with the hanging, just making a snap judgment and hanging people is one side of the equation. The other side of the equation is simple moral values within a town. And we have Rheingold, Johnny Ringo, who is a con artist. Who in this story says that he's from the railroad, but he seems to have an overarching interest in that silver that disappeared from the 924. They said it was a Mexican bandit named Estrada. And that's what sends Jake south to find Estrada before Estrada hides the silver. We now go to the second episode of When You're Dead, You're Dead by Robert P. Fitton. Back to the Old West. Chapter 5. Brinson, Nevada. June 17, 1882. 6.43 p.m. The cow punches and town folk laughed and drank beer from oversized frosted glasses. Metal plates clanged and the conversation maintained a background buzz inside the Coltrane Hotel's wide dining room. Along the bright yellow walls and a long row of white pane windows, Jake bit into his steak. Albie slobbered mashed potatoes around his mouth and onto a blue checkered tablecloth. The crimson-haired Andy Bisbane pinched a piece of crumpled paper between his fingers as he stepped between the tables and the prancing waiters in white aprons. He spoke in a low, reluctant voice as his eyes wandered. Hey, Jake. Andy. He lifted up a wrinkled telegram. I forgot to give you this. Jake left the steak and potatoes on his fork. Wires up yet? They keep going down as soon as Levi fixes them. Somebody's messing with them wires. Levi Hansen's a smart kid. He'll find the bastards. Well, he's got Sawtooth with him, said Andy. Jake gave a quick nod and lifted his fork. Good shot, Sawtooth to, bit a man to death!' shouted Albie. "'I'll remember that if we run out of bullets, Elby. Jake looked at the yellow telegram and set the fork back on his pewter plate. "'What do you got?' "'Telegram from Carson City. The judge at Albie tried to grab the wire. what he say? What'd he say?' "'What does he say?' asked Jake, wincing at Albie. "'Here, read for yourself.' Jake held the paper in his hands. Leaving Carson City on Monday. Stop. Get cribbage board. Ready to give you second chance. Stop. We'll take care of all business. Stop. We'll arrive Tuesday. Last stage. Mackenzie. Well, that's two nights away. With a grin, Jake set the message on the tablecloth. I just wish I could talk to the judge now about Dalton. "'What'd he say? What'd he say?' asked Elby, gushing more potatoes between his missing front teeth. "'He says he'll be here on the last stage. Last stage on Tuesday.' "'Judge think he did it?' asked Elby. "'Now the judge ain't got no way to tell me that, Elby, with them wires down.' Jake flipped a silver piece to Andy. "'Thanks, Andy. Much obliged.' "'You want me to wire anyone when the wires are up again?' "'Hell, we need to contact Fort Churchill and the Overland Railroad.' Then again, that railroad man's arriving tonight. you hear anything else, Andy, you let me know. Especially if them wires are up again. If I didn't have to follow that silver, I'd ride along the line with Levi. Them wires keep coming down in different places, Jake. Anybody new here in town before the wreck? Nobody unusual, except Albie. Go ahead, make fun. You don't find that silver, Jake, the government will kick your ass. Jake scooped up some potatoes on his fork as he thought. He's right. I am? asked Albie. Yeah. Something ain't sitting right with me, like how fast this here thing happened. The tracks get blown up, and the silver, and the passages, and the army, they all move out like jackrabbits. Well, maybe it's a conspiracy, said Albie. Maybe, Albie. I'm going to talk with that railroad man when he gets in. I'd like to know where the hell them passengers are staying. I'll let you know, Jake. Obliged, Andy. Jake watched him leave the dining room, and then he cut into the charcoal chunk of beef on his plate. Elby cackled again. Jake, Dalton kept telling me. He kept telling me. Said he didn't do it. Said Tom Dunbar was on the floor, Jake. Already dead. Maybe he was. I never took Dalton for a liar. Elby's talking and eating at the same time annoyed him. A mixture of potatoes and peas hung from Elby's chin. All he did was go over to borrow a saw, Jake. Come on, wipe your chin for crying out loud, said Jake, sipping the coffee. I don't think he did it. I told you, someone rode into that place from the east. The spent shell was out on the range, and his boots was covered with creosote. Dalton's boots were clean. Listen, I got some papers to get in order for Judge McKenzie in case I ain't back when he comes in. Ain't you coming over to the saloon, Jake? Albie wiped the rest of his food and gravy from his plate with a piece of bread. I'll be over later before I head out, he said as he stood. He put a Morgan dollar down on the tablecloth and picked up his hat. Albie raised his bushy gray brows. Jake, can you spot me some drinking money? You just tell Orville I said to put it on my tab. I'll see you over there. Jake nodded to the waiter, scurrying between the tables, and then he stepped into the hotel's walnut-paneled lobby. Several men in eastern formal clothes and a woman and child, all coated with dust, lingered at the buffed mahogany hotel counter. The clerk handed a key from the slots behind the counter to a man in a dark wool suit. Jake peered around a leafy green plant near the grandfather clock. The late stage must have come in early. He pushed the heavy hotel doors and stepped onto the boardwalk. Silhouette gray buildings etched the starry sky along the dirt-packed road. A few men from the stage led the horses into the livery. The coach, luggage rack empty, angled downward toward the street. A man with a thin face and auburn hair dabbed on his high forehead stretched out his black polished boots out the stage door. He stepped on the bottom brace and pulled himself out the side panels. His wide comb mustache, too wide for his face and rounded jar, added a few years to his countenance. In his black suit and string tie, he might have been from Chicago or even New York. He checked his silver watch and then tucked it back in his vest pocket. His smooth black leather gloves fit tightly on his fingers. As a vanished cane with a brass head appeared from under his coat, Jake was sure he had seen his penetrating blue eyes somewhere. One of the drivers, holding a rifle, dusted off his pants as he approached. How's the trail from Eureka, Ed? Trail's a trail, Jake. Jake watched the stranger. That the railroad man? John Reingell from Omaha, replied Ed. Transferred on the stage at Eureka. Transferred from where? Hell, I'll have to go back and check when i get back that big lady is matilda parsons what about her never shut up all the way from carson city i just like to drive the horses jake i could hear her clear up top jake grinned there she is now the well-dressed man extended his hand to a round framed lady in a yellow dress she had a wide mouthful of teeth and her boisterous chatter was evident even from across the street Thank you so much for being my traveling companion, Mr. Rheingold. My pleasure, Mrs. Parsons. He bowed slightly, and she twiddled her crimson curls. Several men from the coal train appeared for her luggage. With a sly, engaging smile, the six-foot-tall Rheingold veered toward Jake and spoke in a crisp voice. If we didn't make it to Brinson, I was going to jump off the stage. Sounds like you had some feminine company, said Jake. Rheingold crunched his lower lip up to his looping mustache. You're the marshal? We met before, asked Jake. I don't think so. My name is John Rheingold. He balanced a stogie between his white teeth as Jake shook his strong and calloused hand. Jake McBride, you only town about the silver? I'm here to find that silver for the railroad, yes. That shipment was due in Carson City, although I have very little information with your wires down. I was wired in Eureka by my company and was told the 924's passengers were sent to Carson City by the Army. I was on company business in Eureka. Yeah. And the engineer, Wheel, wired the overland from Carson City, saying the Mexicans had stolen the silver shipment. I think you, as a lawman, would understand the implication of Mexican bandits. Why the hell is the engineer in Carson City and not here? I instructed Weill to return with his men to Brinson for the investigation. Reingold's eyes swung down the dirt-laden street toward the arroyo. This is Brinson, correct? Correct. Jake furrowed his brow. Rail line heads north to Carson City and then west to San Francisco on the other side of the Sierra. Oh, I want a room facing east, said Mrs. Parsons in a shrill voice as she passed three porters and an odd number of trunks. She gave Rheingold an engaging smile as she passed. I'd love to see the sunrise. Think you could see the sunrise, Mr. Ringold, said Jake. Ed laughed hard enough to hold his knees. Even Rheingold chuckled as he followed Mrs. Parsons as she entered the coal train. I don't think I could ever survive seeing the sun rise, Marshal. One big woman, said Jake. Reingold twisted back to Jake. I was told you were out of town, Marshal. I was tracking some varmints who was rustling cattle, but I gave up. They're long gone, and I'm back early. But this silver, it just disappears under the U.S. Army's nose. Mexicans overpowered them. A man named Estrada, according to Weill. Strata must have reorganized his gang, because there wasn't much left of it last year. Wheel and McAllister say the army men on board were tied up and brought south with the wagons. And the silver. Who's McAllister? He's the conductor and helps with the engine, according to Wheel. Nothing has been proved about the army men, but I need to wire my company. But again, your wires are down. I'm aware of that, Mr. Rheingold. Rheingold smoothly puckered his lips on the stogie. Have you been out to the wreck? Yeah, I've been out there. Place is deserted. Well, how'd you get out here so soon? Asked Jake. Something about Rheingold bothered him. Told you I was on company business in Eureka. With that track destroyed, I took the stage. These lines being down is like the war. I was in the war, I know that. Union? Asked Rheingold. Was with McClellan early. Then the 23rd Ohio with my friend Jim Coltrane. He owns this hotel. Later we was with Sheridan in the Shenandoah. I was just a lowly private until Antietam, said Jake. We was in ordnance, kept the supplies coming. I've seen you somewhere. (laughs) You're too young to have been in the war. Jake folded his arms. Images of fighting back and forth over the stone bridge spanning Sharpsburg Creek were still in his head. A.P. Hill forced them back late in the afternoon. So many corpses were strewn over the fields in that Maryland town. Well, at that time, I was a boy in Indiana. Never been there. Can I ask you a question, Mr. Reingold? Yes, sir. Why the hell would the Overland have all that silver on a train full of passengers? Where did they get on? Reingold's expressive eyes trailed to the side. I don't make the arrangements, Marshal. I'll get more information once your wires are up. Right. I'm going to follow them wagons into Sororo Canyon. Well, that's Estrada's modus operandi. Jake held his own stogie by his side. What are you talking about? He did it in Skeleton Canyon in the Peloncillo Mountains. The canyon straddles Arizona and New Mexico Territory. There's loot in the canyon. I'm certain that's what he's done here. Nah, Strada wouldn't hit this fur north, and most of his gang were killed along with their mules, if I recollect correctly. Gangs reform, Marshal. Maybe. You sure know a lot about the territory down there. The overland goes down there. But you don't know nothing about the passages on that train. No, sir. Reingold inhaled and finished the stogie. He snuffed it out in the dirt. You should just let the Pinkertons handle the silver, Marshal. I think you're in over your head trying to track Mexicans. Jake stepped close enough to inhale Rheingold's fancy cologne. I ain't over my head, brother. And I keep hearing about Estrada and them Mexicans. But as far as I'm concerned, it's all second-hand bullshit. I want to talk with the passengers. You're welcome to talk with Wheeler McAllister. They should be back by tomorrow from Carson City. They said that Jose Estrada led the attackers. They were all dark-haired and speaking Spanish. They loaded the silver in the wagons before heading into the canyon. Jake leaned against one of the hotel's wood support posts. He struck a match and lit a rolled-up bunch of tobacco. A few weeks ago, I looked at the wanted posters about Estrada in Texas. He's been giving the rangers trouble for years. I tell you again, Estrada's in the border region, and he ain't never come this far north. Maybe for a freight load of silver bars he would. That would set a man for life. Jake had heard that phrase, but he didn't know where. He puffed on the tobacco. Car full of silver, and they let a bunch of Mexican banditos just take it. A couple of army men were killed. Some helped the passengers to Carson City, and the rest were taken by Estrada, from what my company said on the wire. And just where were the army men from? Fort Churchill. The goddamn Mexicans overpowered the cavalry? (laughs) Apparently. Oh, bullshit. I have two army men from Fort Churchill doing tonight. They can help me, and my company is bringing in a Pinkerton detective. "'Waitin' for the Pinkertons ain't gonna do nobody no good. "'We have to get after them wagons and then wire Fort Churchill.' "'Wait until daylight. We'll ride out to Sororo Canyon together,' said Rheingold. "'It's my job to look into this, Rheingold. "'I'd like to talk with Wheel and his railroad men.' "'Rheingold placed his spindly fingers on Jake's shoulder. "'We'll have some breakfast and we'll all meet out at the canyon. What do you say?' He was sure he had seen Rheingold somewhere. No, I'm, I'm leaving tonight. Get a jump on them wagons. I frankly think traveling at night is not prudent. Jake tightened his brow. What exactly do you do for the overland, Mr. Rheingold? I'm a vice president, and I'm personally responsible for the track from Omaha to the San Francisco. If I don't find that silver, I will be responsible for nothing. Jake turned toward his office. A single oil lamp burned in Dalton's cell. Deep in thought, Rheingold stared across the prairie stars and abruptly plucked another stogie from his inner pocket. Jake wrapped his arm. The Mexicans left yesterday. We can catch the wagon stuffed with silver in a few days if we leave now. They'd be near Death Valley, or maybe they've already headed back to New Mexico territory. Marshal, I do need your help in finding that silver, and there is a reward. I don't care about no money, but you might want to get some reward money to the widow Dunbar. Her husband was gunned down, shot in the back. Whoever earns the railroad's reward can do whatever he wants with it. Good, I'll remember that. Reinhold removed another stogie and held it between his fingers without lighting it. Jake faced his clear blue eyes. I just have trouble believing Estrada and his gang came up from Texas. Well, you can talk to Wheel in the morning, Marshal. No, I want to leave tonight. You're a persistent man. I aim to follow them wagons south to Sororo. Reingold seemed troubled as they drifted onto the boardwalk. Listen, I'm going out to inspect the 924 in the morning. I'd be glad to go down in the canyon with you. Then I'm going to miss you. You want the two army men with you? asked Rheingold. No, I'm bringing my Shoshone friend with me. Jake laughed and clamped his hand on Rheingold's shoulder. (laughs) You may be good at railroading, Mr. Rheingold, but uh, Estrada don't come up here. Texas is too far away. I believe what Wheel is saying. Well, in my business, you believe half of what you hear and the other half you shoot the sky with. I'll be in the Arroyo. Jake pointed across the street to the glowing frosted window. A few cowhands staggered through the split cafe doors. He heard the piano. Reingold started down the boardwalk. Maybe I'll get in some card playing. Jake stopped and then he turned. You a gambling man? I can be persuaded. Look, I'll meet you before you leave. I'm sure that working together we can solve this thing quickly. That's another thing about this business, said Jake from 20 feet away. You can never count on nothing. Well, I suppose that's true. Ringold tipped his hat and strolled down the boardwalk toward the hotel entrance. Hotel help descended upon him and scrambled to get his bags. Ed approached from the livery. I thought you'd be drinking by now. Who the hell is Rheingold, Ed? Likes people to carry his bags. Says he's a big railroad man. I never heard of him. Come on, let's get down to the Arroyo. Man should carry his own bags. Jake glanced at Ed. I have to check my prisoner first. I'll see you at the saloon. I was just beginning to wonder if you gave up drinking. Jake smiled and shuffled across the dirt to his office. The stars brightened as he moved away from the hotel lights. The moon would not be up till later. Something about Rheingold was not right. When they repaired the line, maybe he should telegraph the overland and get a reference on Rheingold. He opened the office door and struck a match against the plaster. He placed the open flame on the oil lamp wick. The wick flared and the office brightened. Holding the desk lamp, he moved with the shadows down the hall. He pushed the keys into the back door lock and opened the door. A single low flame flickered inside the wall sconce. Dalton, hands folded on his chest, slouched in the corner of the bed. Jake again checked Dalton's boots against the bed. The heels were clean, but the black leather was scuffed and dusty. You are right, Dan? As right as an innocent man can be. I hear what you're saying, but I need to get you a lawyer. I don't want no lawyer, Jake. I didn't do nothing. I went over to borrow Dunbar's saw. Jake leaned against the rough stucco wall. You'll get your chance to tell your side. You need some water or something? I don't want nothing Sub getting out of here. He stood and held the cell window bars. I'd advise getting a lawyer, but that's your choice. They all think I did it. I know, I know. Them Turner boys got everyone all stirred up. Mackenzie will decide this with no help from the Turner boys. Dalton shook his head and gazed outside. Jake hung around for close to a minute. You want some grub? I ain't hungry. Jake, you're the marshal. Albie says you found that shell and the creosol. I saw you looking at my boots. Now, you don't see no creosol. You have to find out who killed Tom Dunbar. Well, I'll do my best. Dalton swallowed, his eyes moistened, and he continued to steer toward the saloon. I hear you're following Mexicans down Sororo. I gotta. Turner, boys, could come in here and string me up. Now nah, that ain't gonna happen with Mackenzie coming. I've already appointed Levi Hanson deputy last April. While I'm gone, he'll have Sawtooth with him, and Jim Coltrane will be my eyes and ears here in the town. Levi and Sawtooth are both damn good shots. Just remember, Marshal, if you don't find who gunned down Dunmar, I'll be hanging from that tree at his ranch. Not if you didn't do it. Get some shut Eye, Dan. I'll be back in a couple of days. If Estrada don't kill you. Well, when you're dead, you're dead. Dalton returned to the mattress and sprawled his legs out straight. Jake locked the coal bars and shuffled with the oil lamp into the hall. He locked the outer door and stepped back into his office. At the desk, he scribbled notes for McKenzie on a sheet of paper. Dalton might be lying, but he doubted it. The creosote on the porch might be from something else. Dan Dalton didn't even carry a gun. Jake pulled the worn wood cribbage board from his desk drawer and placed the wrinkled card deck on a yellowed Carson City newspaper. Maybe this time Mackenzie would beat him. Quickly, he lifted his saddlebags and supplies onto Elby's desk. He packed enough provisions to last a week. As he lifted the lantern onto the desk, he debated whether to wait until morning. Twelve hours might be enough time for Estrada to move the silver somewhere else. He needed a drink before he left and kept his bags unpacked. Before extinguishing the wall sconce, he blew out the desk lamp and looked around his office. He crossed the creaky floor directly to the wanted posters nailed to the plaster near the door. A couple of killers had actual photographs. Near the bottom of the pile were two sketch posters ripped at the edges of Jose Estrada. His mustache was full and twirled on both drawings. He had a sombrero hanging around his neck on the first poster, but both depictions showed him in a striped vest. The warrant specified bank robberies in New Mexico Territory and Texas. Jake looked up from the oil lamp's light. He stroked his chin. New Mexico was a long way from Nevada. Traveling over that distance would be stupid. Someone might see the Mexican and collect the $500 reward. One of the warrants involved the killing of two bank guards in Santa Fe. He let the posters fall back on the wall. Strata would be taking a big chance, Jake said out loud. With the stagecoats safely stored in the livery, Jake walked steadily down the street toward the saloon. O'Malley's piano playing and the crowd clapping broke the nighttime silence. He pushed open the cafe doors and tobacco smoke swirled around the room. On the stage, the showgirls danced in bright crimson satin dresses, kicking their legs higher as the men below yelled louder. He nodded to O'Malley and pushed through the crowd to the bar. Albie was at the far table with Ed. Over here, Jake! I'll be right there, Albie. Jake sidestepped to the bar. Orville already had a bottle and a shot glass ready for him. Thanks, Orville. He poured himself a drink and then proceeded along the bar to the rear table. Alby leaned back in a chair behind a dozen smaller bottles. Glad you're having a good time on my tab, Alby. Alby leaned over his whiskey. It says John Reingold's here about the missing silver, Jake. You still leaving tonight? Yeah, I'm heading out. You seen Soaring Bird? Ain't seen him. Rheingold... He get out here too damn quick, said Jake. Elby grabbed Jake's wrist. Reingold's meeting two cavalrymen from Fort Churchill, Jake. I hear the railroad's sending a Pinkerton detective, too. Old news, brother. Jake lifted the shot glass to his lips and drank the whiskey. He wrapped the glass on the table. Well, it's the Overland's own damn fault. They should have had that train filled with just soldiers, not passengers. I heard engine bands been out there, said Albie. Maybe they took it. I don't think engines are going to do much with that silver, Albie. You believe every rumor that come floating into town. Soaring Bird would have known if Injuns were involved. Rango keeps talking about the Mexicans, said Ed. Somebody took the silver and the army men away in wagons. I seen the tracks. Listen, Albie, find Sawtooth and track down Levi Hansen. Tell Levi he's in charge while I'm away. What about me? What about you? Just tell Levi. Simple message. I don't want them turners coming back into town with a hangman's noose. I'll keep a lookout, Jake. You'll find Levi. Jake caught sight of Pam Grayson's dark hair across the bar. He focused on her tight, dusty britches. Pam ain't been around here for a while. Excuse me, gentlemen. Oh, cats on the prowl! Cats on the prowl! <laughs> Said Alby with a hyena laugh. Jake rounded the tables. Pam's green eyes focused on him. He tilted his hat. Pam, I hear you're staying out at the Turner Ranch. Well, Jake McBride. She drank the whiskey straight last time i saw you you were trying to get me up to your room maybe i still am how you been punching cows and listening to them turner boys tell me that i don't know what the hell i'm doing your old man made it too soft for them they would know a hard day's work if it crawled into bed with them leave it to the punches and the ranch hands i'm sure you don't take any of their guff sunshine She spread her tanned arms across the back of the chair. Her muslin jersey opened at the collar just enough to expose her firm breast. So, who you got behind bars, Marshal? I got bigger problems than that. Silver and Sororo Canyon, still within my jurisdiction. The Overland's got a Pinkerton coming out here and the Railman's already checked in. And I really don't care about them coming in here. Ought to let folks solve their own problems where them problems happen. Well, amen to that, said Pam, tilting the shot glass. She smacked her lips. Her green eyes sizzled. Let me tell you, just let the railroad handle it. Don't you get involved. I don't trust the railroad, the Pinkertons, none of them bastards. But there is a reward out. So, you're really riding out to Sororo Canyon tonight? Yeah he said, sitting next to her. She whispered and purposefully leaned forward so he could see her rounded breast swivel inside the jersey. You ain't answering my question. Who you got behind bars? You haven't heard about Tom Dunbar? asked Jake. "Sure, dead, right? Yeah, Dan Dalton was found over there. He do it? Hell no, he didn't do it. He was over there borrowing a saw. Somebody came in from the east, I reckon, Pam. What makes you say that? Call it intuition, sunshine. You know, Jake, she ran her fingers down his rough beard stubble. I'm upstairs in 220 at the coal train. That is, if you're interested. Ain't you going back to the Turner Ranch tonight? Well, do you think it would be worth my while to stay in town? She smiled and finished the whiskey. Unless you have to leave tonight? Well, uh, that depends. She stood and stretched her tight form before him. Jake let his eyes walk up her leather breeches. She placed her finger against his lips as she leaned over. Her eyes were heavy. Don't wait too long. Jake watched her as she sashayed through the cafe doors. But she turned and smiled before she stepped outside. Chasing her into the coal train with Nix's plans to ride to Sororo tonight. But he had been after her for two months. He finished another shot. He checked the pendulum clock. He was about to give Estrada another twelve hours. Chapter Six: Brinson, Nevada, June Eighteenth, eighteen eighty-two, one twenty a.m. Three showgirls lounged around his table for about a half an hour. But Jake's thoughts were stuck on Pam Grayson. She was like a wild horse, working alongside the men and never took any lip. Her unsavory reputation made him want her even more. Maybe he could spend a few hours with her and then move out. Or maybe he would just worry about a in the morning. Ed Ferrier slipped upstairs with one of the girls as Albie staggered over to the bar with a few cattle punchers. Jake paid the tabs and then glided into the cooler air outside. His eyes adjusted to the stars spread above the prairie. He recognized the Big Dipper from his days in the Army. Night after night, he waited to fight the Rebs in Virginia. Night after night, he became friends with the stars. Men died, but the stars were still there. He glanced up to the second floor of the coal train and then trotted like a proud steed down the boardwalk. Some rooms had lamps burning, and others were dark, and he had suspicions whether Pam Grayson was just leading him on. Inside the hotel, Buford Peck, his feet propped up, slept behind the counter. Jake crossed the lobby rug and pounded his fist loudly on the wood counter. "'Good God!' cried Buford, his eyes opening wide as he exploded out of the chair. "'Where do I get some room service around here, Buford?' My lord, you scared me half to death, Marshal. He took out his green handkerchief and wiped his high forehead. I've had a rough night. Well, ain't that bad. That woman, Matilda Parsons, she thinks she's the Queen of England. Jake smiled. That's what you're here for, Buford, to serve your customers. Buford shook his head. You know, she not only wants flowers in her room tonight, but she wants the fresh flowers in her room tomorrow morning. When the sun rises. Yes, that's exactly what she said. Then I suggest you find some flowers. Well, at least she only comes through here once a year. Really? Jake tapped his finger on the counter. Goes to visit her sister every June in Carson City and then heads back to... He looked down at the register. To Fresno City, California. That's nice, Buford. Pam Grayson. "'Pam Grayson,' he said in a lower voice. "'Is she in 220?' "'Pam—Pam Pam Grayson?' Buford stuffed the handkerchief in his back pocket. "'Oh, yes, Pam Grayson, the cowgirl,' he said, grinning. Jake scowled. "'Well?' "'Ah, uh, let me see.' Buford stuck a pencil between his teeth and scanned the guest's register. "'Yes, you are absolutely correct.' She is registered, but... Jake studied Rheingold's flowery ink signature in the book. John Rheingold? The railroad man? I know who he is, Buford. Has he ever been in here before? Buford stared at the book. Well... Buford's little face tightened. Yeah, I saw him before, but I couldn't find his name when I checked the book. I seen him somewhere, too. But I'll be damned if I know where. He pointed down at Buford. Keep an eye on him for me, will you? Yes, sir, but in Buford. Sir, keep it under your hat. And tell Jim the marshal said he was leaving in the morning to look at the wreck. But marshal, that's all. Go back to sleep. As he climbed to the second floor, Buford quickly looked down. Upstairs, Jake followed the oil lamps down a narrow hall with ripped green flowered wallpaper. He approached a varnished door. The shiny brass numbers indicated he was outside Pam's room. He rapped his knuckles against the wood and waited. His mind drifted back to Pam as she walked from the saloon. This woman must be crazy in a bedroom. As he knocked louder this time, he began to think that he had been conned. Half a minute later, he rumbled down the hall and descended the stairs. The lady's not in, Buford. "'I was going to tell you that, but you interrupted me,' said the clerk. "'Well, where the hell is she? "'You could have saved me a trip up them stairs. "'I saw her earlier with that railroad man. "'Rheingold? "'She don't waste any time landing a man with money. "'You know what Sam Turner says?' "'Jake took off his hat and wiped his forehead. "'Get near the money and you're all set for life.' "'They talked over by the fireplace.' Buford pointed to the dying fire across the lobby. They talked for 15 minutes just after he got off the stage. What did you do, tying them on the clock? Buford produced a meek smile. They leave? Yes, with two cavalry soldiers. Well, where did they come from? They just showed up in town. Jake nodded and stroked his chin. Interesting about her and Rheingold... "'Pam knows everybody,' said Buford, covering his mouth as he snickered. "'If she don't, she will. (laughs) "'You don't miss a beat, do you, Buford? "'I won't bother buying the bugle no more. "'I'll just sit here and wait to hear from you!' Across the lobby, Pam Grayson slowly slid her riding hat back, so the cord dangled around her neck. Her long brown hair bounced down over her muslin jersey. She nursed a smoldering stogie as if she were posing for a photograph inside the open hotel doors. Jake stepped away from Buford and swaggered across the floor. Evening, Pam, I didn't see you up in your room. Then you weren't looking too hard, were you? I got sidetracked, sunshine, but I ain't sidetracked no more. He placed one hand against the wall and leaned over her shoulder. She took a final drag from the stogie, blowing the smoke slowly across his face. "'I think it's time I get upstairs, Marshal. What do you think?' She kissed him hard and then held the back of his neck. She tossed the stogie through the open doorway. He eyed her rounded breast just below her jersey and did not care who she was talking to or what she had ever done. She tiptoed her fingers under his shirt and dragged her arms around his chest. They backed toward the stairs as Buford ducked into the back room. Jake clipped her at the knees and lifted her up. The remnants of a sweet city perfume mixed with an outdoor freshness that sent him reeling. He kissed her again as he hoisted her up the staircase. About midway, he let his hand slip up her jersey and he cupped her smooth, firm breasts. She enveloped her lips around his mouth. He staggered to room 220 and kicked open the door. Rose scents filled the room as he lowered her to the satin sheets. He shut the door and lit the oil lamp, but as he turned, Pam had removed her jersey. Her hair fell over her bare shoulders. Jake threw his vest and shirt on the floor. Pam sprang from the bed and trampled across the shirt. Then she flipped off her hat and pulled off her dark leather boots. She clawed her way across the bed like a wild mountain lioness and climbed on top of Jake. The oil lamp flickered and she peeled off his clothes. Jake forgot about Tom Dunbar, or Estrada, or even the missing silver. He would ride out to Sororio Canyon in the morning. Jake drifted in and out of sleep with Pam's arm resting over his chest as she lay on her stomach. He let his hand slide down her buttocks. In the dim twilight, her long dark hair swept across the satin sheets, moving with each breath as she slept. He slowly changed his position and gazed at the almost indiscernible clothes and boots scattered across the floor. He wanted her again as he waited for dawn. Although restless, his heavy eyelids slowly closed. The room brightened when he awoke. A clothing trail was strewn across the wood boards. He heard splashing in the tub in the next room. He sat up and rubbed his eyes as he looked between the white lace curtains. Daylight touched the steeple top, and the embroidered curtains, taken by the morning breeze, were silhouetted on the wall. She sat in a raised tub in the middle of the other room, her hair pulled up and her breast nestled in the suds. A wide smile came over her face. I was wondering when you'd get up. I thought maybe I wore you out. Well, you came close. He walked naked toward the tub. What do you know about John Rheingold? She played with the Suds and did not look at him directly. He's an important railroad man. He has money. Thought I'd talk to him. You sleep with him? Now, Marshal, she said standing, the Suds slowly meandering down her slick skin, that ain't none of your business. Maybe not, but I want to know who went after that silver. She stepped out and curled a white linen towel around her upper torso. Then I suggest you get out to Sororio Canyon. He peered out the lace curtains at the sunlit town. I intend to. Chapter 7. Brinson, Nevada. June 18th, 1882. 7.20 a.m. Elby stomped into the office as Jake set the speckled blue coffee pot over the wood stove. He stuffed the coffee grinder back on the wall shelf. Given the liquor his deputy had consumed last night, Jake was surprised to see him so early. His dusty green, wide-brimmed hat covered his eyes as he prattled on about Rheingold, wanting to see Jake at the hotel. Jake pushed the hat back up over Elby's forehead. Rheingold and the two cavalry soldiers had plans to travel to Soroyo Canyon. Sorry, Bird and Jim Coltrane. They said they knew. They knew. They knew what, Albie? About you and Pam. Never mind about me and Pam, said Jake, checking the coffee pot. If I had to choose between Pam Grayson and riding to Sarroyo Canyon, Alby, shut up. Listen, you go tell Rheingold. I'll join him and the soldiers at the coal train. Then I'm heading south. I'm heading south to make up the lost time. Oh you're a fox, Jake, you're a fox Jake sneered and then pointed at Alby. Go tell Ringo, for I shoot your ass full of lead. I'm going, I'm going. Albie cackled as he opened the door and left. Jake poured the coffee. He took some bread rolls from the cabinet and placed everything on a metal tray. Thoughts of Pam in the hotel room bed clouded his mind. He gazed out the window toward room 220, but he kept thinking back to what Buford said about Pam talking to Ringo. He grabbed the tray, unlocked the back door, and walked down the dank hall. Dalton stared into the sunshine through the window's metal bars. Not bacon and eggs, but it'll have to do, Dan. Why, I ain't hungry. Jake unlocked the cell and held the tray. Well, suit yourself. I'll leave it here on the table. Don't matter. I'm a dead man, Jake. Jake stared at him and thought he might confess to killing Tom Dunbar. He set the coffee and the rolls on the table and then turned. Dalton tapped his fingers against the bars. You want to tell me something, Dan? Dalton turned. His reddened eyes tightened and he pushed his teeth together. Don't let me hang. You ain't gonna hang. You sure you didn't see nobody out there? No, but you have the shell. Yeah, I have the shell and it don't mean nothing right now. I'm more concerned, Dan, as to why someone would kill Tom Dunbar. If I knew why, maybe I'd find his killer. Dalton put his head in his hands and nodded. He kept mumbling something about the judge not believing his story. Judge McKenzie will carry out the law. If you're innocent, you'll go free. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time, Marshal. Justice has a way of getting out. Nothing's going to happen till I get back. I've already written a note about this for Mackenzie. Jake put his hand on Dalton's shoulder. Don't worry, son. He left the cell and Dalton fell back on the mattress. The coffee steamed upward from the cup as Jake locked the metal cell door. He headed down the hall to his office gun cabinet and pulled out a Remington rifle. A fresh oily residue coated the barrel. He locked the cabinet and loaded extra ammunition from his desk drawer into a saddlebag. Then he packed his bags and secured the straps. He filled his canteens for the ride into the desert near Death Valley to the south. Jake poured some more coffee and stepped through his office doorway. Alby scrambled like a sidewinder across the dirt. John Reingold is all set. He's all set. Jake crossed the boardwalk. Where have you been, Alby? What did he say? Says he knows. Knows what? Did you give him the message or not? Albie bit his lower lip and held the brim of his hat. Says it's his job to look into that train going off the tracks. They're going out to Sororio. And for, well, and they were having breakfast. I asked him if I could have some of their grits. Jake looked toward the coal train's unpainted wood clapboards in the morning sun. Albie, he's an important railroad man. You don't go barging in and eating breakfast. You probably wolfed it all down, too, didn't you? Rheingold said he wanted to see you, but then he tells me, he tells me to get the hell out when I ask for more food. Well, I can't say that I blame him. You got her last night, Jake. Jake squinted and held his coffee cup. You best worry about your own business, Albie. You got you got that look on your face. I bet she was a crazy one. Albie, shut up. Listen. I want you here. You watch Dalton while I'm gone. Where's Levi Hansen and Sawtooth? They've been riding the telegraph lines looking for the cutter. Levi said he'd be over. Jake, let me go south with you. Let me go south with you. No. Come on, Jake. I don't want to stay back here. First Reingold tells me to get out. Now you. Well, that should tell you something, brother. Last thing I need is a railroad man and a snit. Start using your head, Albie. He was drinking all night. Rumor has it, Rheingold has a drinking problem, Jake. And you don't? Get the hell out of here. Albie mumbled as he trudged back Whoa, into the no, office. Well, I didn't know. So Jake I started across the mind. street and oh, looked yes. up at the coal train's gray clapboards. The sun heated his back. Something gnawed at him inside. Maybe it was Dalton held in that cell while a killer was free. The killer had smeared creosote on the Dunbar's porch and he dropped a spent shell on the range. Jake preferred to look into this thing on his own. John Rheingold or the Pinkerton man might hamper his finding Tom Dunbar's killer. Coltrane's dining room windows glowed with the morning sun. Only a few people remained from breakfast. He did not see Jim Coltrane or Soaring Bird. Near the empty brick hearth, Rheingold ate breakfast with two uniformed cavalry soldiers with bright-knotted yellow bandanas. The dark-haired soldier wore lieutenant stripes, and the other man, a sergeant, had bleached suspenders and a faded uniform. He remembered what Buford said about them speaking with Pam in the hotel last night. Rheingold wore a brown vest, a silky blue bandana, and a smooth white linen shirt. He sat down at his utensils when he saw Jake. Something about his eyes still looked familiar. Ringold stood and extended his hand. Unlike his arrival on the evening stage, his eyes were ringed with deep circles. Mr. Ringold. please sit down. You want something to eat? Much obliged. I had my chow earlier, said Jake, but I will join you, thanks. He sat between the two soldiers as they finished eggs and steak. I apologize for my deputy pushing his way in here and eating your food. Uh, he's a unique individual. Rheingold raised his brows and lifted his coffee cup. Guess you decided to wait until morning till you headed south. Yep. Your company must be uh, mighty anxious to get that silver back. Panicky is the word. And the telegraph wires are still down. We have to find the silver. Well, how? Maybe the Army. company's got a Pinkerton man heading south from San Francisco... You may meet up with him if you're heading south. Well, I'm heading south from Sororo. Good, Reingold smiled, glancing at the soldiers. He sipped the coffee and then nodded. I have Wheel and the conductor McAllister ready to talk to you out at the train. Thought they were in Carson City, said Jake. They are. Uh, they rode with us, said the lieutenant. He had dark hair and midnight eyes. His mustache was thicker and darker than Reingold's. Oh, by the way, this is Lieutenant Scott Dooley and Sergeant George Glidden, Marshal Jake McBride. Gentlemen, uh, you weren't on the train when, uh, I never said I was on the train, said the lieutenant. He had a cocky tone in his voice. We just come from Fort Churchill. Where are you guys from? Well, we was from Texas. I was in Texas, brother. Both men looked at Rheingold. When were you in Texas? asked Rheingold. My friend Jim Coltrane and me, we sold some cattle back in 74, then headed north. Reingold pushed his silver fork into a fluffy mound of scrambled eggs. Well, enough of this small talk. Uh, As you know, the railroad is responsible for the silver shipment. I have raised the reward to $5,000. Hefty reward. My job is upholding the law out here. He thought about Tom Dunbar's widow and kids. They could use the money. Mr. Rheingold, any new leads? Well, the cavalrymen guarding the car with the silver were all taken south, said Rheingold, raising his index finger. Where are them soldiers from? They were our men up at Fort Churchill, said Dooley. We'll saw it all. What did he say? Ah, uh, Mexicans, said Glidden. "'Jose Estrada and at least uh, fifteen of his men. "'The bastards got away.' "'Jose Estrada? "'I keep wondering why Jose Estrada would be here in Nevada.' "'The silver, Marshal said Reingold. "'He was aware of enough silver to set a man for life. "'Word must have got out in California "'that the silver was headed to the U.S. Mint in Carson City. "'Someone gave him inside information.' If Estrada and his gang were through the canyon, they could be headed back to New Mexico territory. But we can't be sure. Other trails head across the grapevines and into Death Valley. Where's that load located? asked Jake. Silver was smelted there and loaded on Overland 924 coming up from San Bernardino. Jake tightened his eyes. I need more cavalry from Churchill. The wires are down, Marshal said Dooley. You know that, or ain't you paying attention? He didn't like Dooley from the second he walked into the dining room. I'm paying attention just fine, Lieutenant. I'll tell you one thing, said Reingold, holding his index finger in midair. If you find Estrada and the others, just find them, mind you, and I'll offer you another 500 of my own personal stock to you. Well, that's quite an offer. Where's the engineer for the 924 wheel? We should be out at Sororo with his men, said Dooley quickly, if it's all right with you. You looking for trouble, Lieutenant? Depends. Jake slowly let his hand slide onto his cold handle. Let me get this straight. All them passages from San Bernardino. They all got swept out of here real quick. And the army guarding the silver? They get taken south by banditos except the engineer and four of his men went with the passengers to San Francisco. Now you've got your story straight, Marshal, said Glidden, holding his fork as if he were going to stab somebody. Jake stared into his dark eyes. He did not like him, Dooley, or Rheingold. Rheingold set down his own fork again. We'll be out at Sororio Canyon this morning. Your deputy should have told you all of this. Jake was still miffed about Alby trying to scoff a breakfast from Rheingold. Yeah, he told me. Not much for witnesses. Well, and McAllister, you're witnesses, said Dooley. He sat back and folded his arms, and he grinned. And, Marshall, you just have to live with that. I will help you, of course, said Ringle. This is a railroad investigation, my joke, just to let you know. I'm the kind of guy who likes to do his job without any outside interference. No offense. No offense taken. Jake pushed the pewter plate forward. As I was about to say, my job is to find them silver bars. We won't tread on what you're doing. I think we're both after the same thing. No argument for me. Good. Then we'll plan to meet you out at the wreck and talk to the other men. I'm planning on it. CHAPTER eight Sororo Canyon, Nevada. June 18th, 1882, 10-11 a.m. Levi kissed his girl, a petite, chestnut-haired 19-year-old, and then he walked toward Jake. Jake lit a stogie and stuck it in the corner of his mouth under his mustache. He stood between Manoir and Levi. Jake had made the dark-haired Levi a deputy a few months back. The kid looked at Jake as if he were some war hero. And although he tried to please Jake, he was tough and quick with the gun. Sawtooth, who once lifted a horse over a fence, talked with Albie near the hitching post as Sarah's wagon headed back into town. Don't take no guff, Levi. No guff at all from them Turner boys. You deputize anyone you need. The judge will be here on the Tuesday night stage. I ain't worried once he's in town. And find them bastards who are cutting the wires, will you? I had seen much of the Turner boys since they tried to hang Dalton, said the long-haired Levi. His dark eyes looked at Jake for answers. Must be back on the ranch. Well, the old man doesn't like you. Tuckerman was his man. I ain't responsible for Rodie Turner challenging Frank Tuckerman. It was a fair fight. Coltrane told me that when he worried me about the marshal position down here. Old man Turner said you was never in the war. "'You tell that old man to say that to my face. "'I'm aware the old man don't like me. "'I'm not his lackey, that's why.' Orode's a weasel!' said Sawtooth, exposing his angled canines. "'Bite him, Sawtooth, bite him!' shouted Albie. "'Bite him!' "'Sawtooth pretended to snap his teeth at Albie. "'He growled, and Albie hid behind Levi. "'Jump in Jerusalem!' Jake grinned as Jim Coltrane walked with Soaring Bird in his fully-packed pinto to the jail hitching post. The old man ain't gonna risk nothing with the judge comin'. Jim Coltrane, always well-dressed, spoke in a cocky lower voice. You finally leaving town, Jake, or uh, shall I reserve 220 for another night? I don't think I could take another night, Jim, said Jake, and all the men laughed. Even Soaring Bird had a slight grin on his normally stolid exterior. Jake's Shoshone friend wore a red and black Mexican blanket over his shoulders and a rounded white hat. Hell, soaring bird, you look like one of Estrada's gang. How's your horse? I have a fresh horse. My horse was lame, McBride. I'm telling you, boys, you find out who's climbing the poles to wreck them telegraph wires. Andy has my messages all set to go when the line is clear. Jake placed a wide brimmed hat on his head and swung his foot in the stirrup over Menowar. He checked the street as Soaring Bird mounted his horse. And Jim, watch John Rheingold. The mustache Coltrane patted Menowar and looked up at Jake. Buford tells me John Rheingold got back into the hotel early with the soldiers. About five o'clock, they were at the Aurora, late in the card game. I thought the son of a bitch looked tired and hung over. Jake pulled his brushed leather gloves over his hand. I have to get to Sororo, Jim. No, Jake, you have to hear this. I'm listening, brother, he said from the saddle. I believe Ringo was up on charges from a poker game, stole the pot with another guy. Now, how do you know that? O'Malley was at the game at the Aurora. He heard Rheingold say he beat the charges because witnesses never showed up. He was drinking heavily. Where was that game? Don't know. I would think the railroad wouldn't stomach a guy like that. If he is from the railroad, Jake. Jake raised his brows. Well, it wouldn't surprise me. Have old Buford keep an eye on him and them two soldiers. If anyone can stick his nose into other people's business, Buford can Will do, Jake. You be careful out there. Following those wagons could be risky, real risky. When you're dead, you're dead. Jake puffed on his stogie and tipped his hat as Menowar cantered left. See you men in a few days. Jake pulled back on the bridle and Menowar slowed near the gulch. Sororo Canyon cut deep into the prairie's red sandstone ledges five miles west of town. He wiped his brow with his blue bandana and pulled a water flask from his saddlebag. As the cool water trickled down his dry throat, he kept wondering why Rheingold would offer 500 of his own stocks to find that silver. Maybe his job was on the line because the railroad was liable for the silver, or maybe it was another one of those things. that just did not make sense. Rheingold and the two cavalry officers are back at the train, said Soaring Bird. He bent over and continued to study the wagon ruts. Heavy wagons, McBride. Heavy if filled with silver. Tricky Pot was getting it down in the canyon. Once they did that, they could head south along the river. Estrada did that at Skeleton Canyon. Soaring Bird stood and held the rope to his pony. He gazed across the flats and back to the train. Why were the engineer and the other man not in town? They were in Carson City for some damn reason. Jake followed the wagon tracks winding into the canyon. We'll talk to them. He brought Menowar away from the canyon walls. Rheingold, Dooley, and Glidden were less than a half a mile back across the dry land in the wavy heat ahead. The outlines of the train were scattered like huge buffaloes over the desert floor. Only the engine and the two cars remained on the track. Two men in striped railroad hats and overalls moved along the cars. Jake gave Menowar a kick, and he galloped closer. The imposing, dynamited crater dissected the rusted rails past the third car. He had seen twisted rails and craters in Petersburg during the war. Rheingold and the soldiers huddled on their horses along the broken cars. As he slowed Menowar, something about this wreck bothered him. Rheingold brought his black sheen horse up front, leaving Jake with the arrogant Dooley next to the splinted car. The blast hole meant considerable dynamite, probably planted precisely to coincide with the train schedule. "'What do you think, Dooley? Them Mexicans got explosives like this?' The lieutenant straddled his horse, adjusted his dusty hat, and crossed his arms over his chest. "'I really don't know.' Jake swung out of the saddle. Menowar stayed back as he walked toward the debris. Haven't seen nothing like this since the war. What unit were you with? I was uh, with Michigan, 69th Michigan. The Iron Brigade, with a Texas accent. Shut up, said Dooley, holding his gun handle. Jake brought Menowar toward Rheingold, near the engine and the two cars still on the tracks. He started singing as he looked back toward Dooley. This yellow rose in Texas, I am gonna see. No other fella knows her. Nobody but me. You shut your damn mouth, lawman. Dooley had his gun drawn. She cried so when I left her. It almost broke my heart. Put your gun away, Dooley, shouted Rheingold, and he galloped from the engine. He had two guns drawn. When Dooley saw Rheingold with the guns, he put the gun back in his holster. Jake glanced at Rheingold and then put his hands on his hips. He studied the folded train cars one more time. Man must be good with the gun. You got all the answers, haven't you, Marshal? asked Dooley. far as I'm concerned, you're just a tin-horned little sheriff. Jake brought Menowar closer to Dooley's unshaven face and Crow Peak-lined eyes. Don't push me, brother. He turned toward Rheingold and George Glidden up front, talking to two men next to the tilted, derailed engine. Before he left, he faced Dooley again. You weren't with no iron brigade. Dooley raised his brow but said nothing. Both men and Glidden rode back to the engine marked 924. Jake was more concerned about the passengers and what they might have seen. He mounted Menowar again and rode along the derailed train. The people responsible for taking this silver had to know of that shipment to the Carson City Mint, and they knew the precise train schedule. That meant planning. According to the wanted posters, Estrada's bandits were hit and run and stole cattle along the Rio Grande. They would not likely have the information about the train schedule, but they might have helped execute the heist. Inside the heavy black locomotive, Reinhold turned quickly at the cab's open window. He whispered something to a man with gray-striped overalls and a navy cap. Jake brought Menowar up to the window. Soaring Bird had dismounted a few hundred feet away and walked around the wreckage. Right this way, Marshal, said Reingold. Which car held the silver? Reingold pointed to the jackknife train. Second from the end. This wagon ruts all around. I seen him. Jake looked over his shoulder and leaned down. I'd like to speak with the engineer. Rheingold faced the man in overalls and an engineer's cap. Well, Wheel here was the engineer. He hid under the wood, stacked in the next car. You see who held up the train? Asked Jake. Wheel looked around at Rheingold and then at Jake. Well, I, I saw them Mexicans uh, wearing bright-colored sombreros. They kept yelling for Estrada. All them bandits—they killed an army man. Well, I don't see no body. Oh, who knows what they did with it? Said Wheel. Then they loaded the bars and the army men into wagons. Mexican banditos? Yes, sir. And they headed south into the, into the canyon. And the wagons weighted down with silver. Yes, sir. Said Wheel. That's what the man said said Dooley, arriving on foot. Wouldn't be my route. Jake tightened his lips, ignoring Dooley, and again studied the train. Well, it must have taken some time to unload the car full of silver, Mr. Wheel. Didn't someone go for help? Well, we were too scared, Marshal. We were too damn scared. My feeling was to get the passengers to San Francisco. Why not Brinson? Carson City uh, was where they connected to San Francisco. Wait a minute, from San Bernardino? Wheel hesitated for a few seconds. Correct. And then we have stops along the way. And nobody thought it was risky putting that silver on the train? Asked Jake. When did they get the silver? Listen, McBride, they had tickets and they got them on. Well, where did they get the silver? Trunk line, he said quickly. From Whitney Side Mines, brought up the mules to the overland line. A hefty white man in a white shirt, maybe 30 years old, stuck his blue hat from inside the engine. Well, who the hell are you? I'm, I'm McAllister. What did you see? Same as wheel. And you was the conductor. All the passengers make it to San Francisco? I, uh, would assume. Where are you from, McAllister? Uh, Illinois. Where else? What the hell difference does that make? I was just working this damn train, Marshal. Man shouldn't be afraid to talk about his past. McAllister stared at him. Texas. Arizona Territory. And what about them Mexicans? Well, they went south. So you're telling me Estrada was up here. Estrada, answered McAllister, his eyes like slits the hell's wrong with your eyes, McAllister? "'You look like you have trouble seeing anything.' "'He bothers my eyes.' "'How many men? How many men were out there?' "'Rheingold and Wheel walked around the cowcatcher.' Fifteen of them. Right, Wheel?' Fifteen. Fifteen, yes. Uh, "'Simon and me, we were thrown against the wall and out of the engine. "'Damn Mexicans! Simon was right there!' "'I was,' said McAllister.' And a lot of them went south, asked Jake. How many times does he have to repeat it, Marshal? Asked Dooley to his left. He now had a rifle cradled in his arms. Strata to rob the goddamn train. Were you here, Lieutenant? Asked Jake. You know what, listen, I wasn't here, Marshal. What did you see, McAllister? Jake whistled for men a while. <whistles> what uh, Mr. Rheingold said. Never mind what Mr. Rheingold said, Ringle lit a stogie. We just want you to tell what happened, Simon, you too, Wheel. Mexicans swarming with Mexicans shooting and cussing in Spanish, said McAllister. They loaded the wagons and went into the canyon. After Estrada and the soldiers left, what did you do? Wheel glanced at Rheingold before he spoke. Well, we had the wagons in one of the cars and just in case we needed them for the silver. Understandable, said Reingold. Jake tilted his head and paused before he spoke. And the Mexicans overpowered the cavalry soldiers. They told you that several times, Marshal, said Dooley. He raised his rifle up a few inches. You're the law, man. Worry more about Estrada. You actually saw Estrada? What did he look like? asked Jake. When both Wheel and McAllister looked over at Rheingold, Jake pushed his lips together. Well, he looked uh, Mexican, said the conductor, squinting again. Led the rest of them. They went right for the silver car. The car with the silver? asked Jake. Yeah, rounded it up and took them a while to unload the bars. Jake nodded as Menowar nudged against his shoulder. Listen, I'd like to talk with them passengers in San Francisco. Well, I'm afraid it may take some time with your telegraph down, said Rheingold, leaning on the windowsill. Mayor Blake is a personal friend of mine. He's housing the passengers at the Palace Hotel when they get in from Nevada. I never could afford the Palace, said Jake. Weel shrugged his shoulders. The company didn't want to inconvenience them. After all, this is a private railroad matter. Well, give me a passenger manifest. We need to verify what these men are saying. Rangel tightened his brow and sprang from the window. He scampered down the angled ladder and onto the desert floor. And then he threw the stogie on the ground. I think these men have told you as much as they can. Dooley swaggered across the dirt, rocking the rifle in his hands. Why don't you just head south now, Marshal? The railroad isn't required to produce a manifest, said Reingold. Well, I'd be obliged if you did. Jake swung around in the creaky saddle. Both Reingold and Dooley upset him. I am the law here, Reingold. Dooley tilted his head back and laughed. The army is the law here, Marshal. I want that list. Reingold nudged closer closer to Jake. I said this is a private railroad matter. I brought you out here as a courtesy. "'Well, the marshal ain't too courteous,' said Dooley. Rheingold pointed at Jake. "'You want to help us?' "'Fine. I'll even send one of the soldiers south with you if you wish.' "'No, thanks.' Jake took men a while by the reins and started along the derailed cars. He was ready to punch either man. As the horse shuffled in the gravel, Jake sensed they were covering up something, but he couldn't prove it. He remembered what Jim Coltrane had told him about Rheingold, admitting to stealing a poker game pot and then being charged. Marshal Marshal Jake brought Menawa toward the silver car down the end. Marshall! Jake turned. What is it? Listen, we're being pressured by the railroad and the government will be involved soon. I apologize if I've been abrupt with you. This attack could cost me my job. I need that list. "'I'll wire the railroad.' "'Good. Except them wires are still down.' "'I'm sure they'll be fixed soon, and I'll get you a list.' Jake held the saddle horn. The sun warmed his back, and Minowatch trotted along the buckled train. He stopped at the freight car. Soaring Bird crossed the floorboards. "'We won't find anything here. We need to go to the canyon now, McBride.' "'Greed. We're losing time.' Ringold moved on foot toward them. He thought about Buford seeing Rheingold talking to Pam last night. You were talking to Pam Grayson, Rheingold squinted. Looks like you got first dibs. And it looks like you were up uh, late yourself. little drinking, a little fun, little poker. Didn't get much sleep. You know the feeling, Marshall, said Dooley. Jake swung his gun, but McAllister drew quickly. That's one fast draw, Mr. McAllister. It's saved my life many a time. And why is that? asked Jake. McAllister immediately looked toward Rheingold. Can't speak for yourself? We are just the way life goes. Jake nodded. I'll see you men in a few days. Anything breaks, you know we're heading near the Panamets, maybe farther down south. Well, good luck, Marshal. I will stand by my reward, said Rheingold. I hear you. Soaring Bird mounted his pony and started with Jake down the train. Jake checked the empty rear car one more time as he passed. Weren't no horses or wagons in this car. That man is a liar. Which one? asked his friend. Jake grinned. Every damn one of them. Ryan is afraid for his job, McBride. I tell you, His being out in Nevada is just too damn convenient, said Jake. Are you saying he's a part of this? I don't know. Too many unexplained things. Too many people just disappearing out of here real fast. And why did he come in by stage? He's a railroad man. Soaring Bird shook his head. Doesn't matter whether he's involved, McBride. We need to follow the trail, move fast, and locate the wagons. Jake spotted Dooley walking around the engine. Dooley! Dooley don't like me singing the yellow rose. He smiled and sang out loud enough for Dooley to hear it. She's the sweetest rose of color this fella ever knew. Her eyes are bright as diamonds. They sparkle like the dew. Chapter 9. Brinson, Nevada, June Eighteenth, 1882. 3:15 p.m. Jim Coltrane pulled the leather register book across the counter. He dragged his finger down the guest list and stopped at the flamboyant brown ink signature of John Rheingold. Rheingold had returned to the hotel at noon and spent a few hours in his room before dining with one of his soldiers. Coltrane noticed something of interest during lunch, and later in the afternoon, the two men had casually strolled over to the Arroyo. Andy says the telegraph is still down, said Buford from back. Cutting new places and Levi can't find nobody. How can that be, asked Coltrane. It gets fixed and then someone climbs up the creosote poles and cuts it again. Sabotage, Mr. Coltrane. Coltrane pushed the book back. Well, you may be right. Really? He shuffled around the counter and adjusted the book to what he deemed its proper position on the counter. You think it has to do with the silver? Well, I'm beginning to wonder. It's like the whole town is cut off from the outside world. Buford lifted a stack of invoices over his mouth as he whispered, Junior Turner was in town today. Why is that news, Buford? asked Coltrane. Who are they hanging now? Filled his wagon, spent over an hour at the general store. Ben Wiggins says he was buying supplies. Coltrane rounded the counter. I'm going to see Mr. John Rheingold and the soldiers in the saloon. He moved toward his side office, but then turned abruptly. What kind of supplies? Why just Junior? Where are the rest of them? He filled his wagon. I think Sam was over at the bank. I see. Mean anything? I don't know. Listen, Buford, you keep watch out here. I know you will. Coltrane lifted his coat off the brass rack inside his office. I'll be across the street. He walked briskly across the flowery lobby carpet he had bought at the Persian Emporium in San Francisco. The teak grandfather clock chimed four times as he stepped onto the boardwalk. As he crossed the dusty, sun-drenched street, he thought about Jake and Soaring Bird tracking the wagons from Sororio. Whoever cut the telegraph lines meticulously planned the silver heist. Afternoon shadows covered the Arroyo's whitewashed clapboards, and the sound of raucous patrons in a piano serenade blared into the street. A couple of men he did not recognize lay drunk against the outside wall. He pushed the cafe doors and surveyed the bar. Rheingold, clad in a black coat, smoked a finely wrapped cigar at the green felt gambling table. He flipped some cards down, and Ed Freeman dealt him a new hand. The railroad man's face remained flat as smoke sauntered upward toward the red-shaded oil lamps. The players solidified their poker hands. The Turners were usually at the Arroyo every Saturday afternoon and night, but they were not here today. Reingold's face brightened with a wide smile as he and the other men folded. He scooped an assortment of coins across the table. His associate played a banjo and sang with Alby near the stage. Coltrane spotted Ben Wiggins at the bar. As he moved through the crowd toward Ben, Rheingold's self-assured demeanor caught his attention. Back at the table, the game broke up, and several disgusted men wandered out of the saloon. Ben? Jim? Jim. O'Malley adjusted the worn sheet music. Then his fingers tapped out a new melody on the dirty ivory keys, but he could not drown out Elby's off-key mining songs and banjo strumming. Coltrane stepped up to the bar. Say, Ben, Junior Turner been in your place today? Ben's wide jaw moved up and down, and his smoky eyes opened as he spoke. Well, he was. Yeah, hell, he he wiped me out. Well, what did he buy? Everything, Jim. Mostly provisions, wood planks, things like that. The Turners always do that when they drive their cattle. Where did he say they were going? Asked Coltrane as Orville set a glass of whiskey on the shiny wood bar. Thanks, Orville. Junior kept repeating how he and his brothers were going with Sam East to buy some cattle, cause head are cheap now after the panic. Then I heard something about Abilene. Hell, he bought all my grain and all my mule harnesses. Coltrane straightened his frame. Mules could transport silver over rough terrain. Linking the Turners to the silver was risky, although rumors had followed Sam Turner West and no one ever proved he skimmed money during the war. He was in the shoe manufacturing business and supplied the Union troops. Maybe people jealous of his wealth had started innuendos, or maybe he really did move west to avoid congressional investigations. Deliberately stealing a government silver shipment required nerve and the risk. What was Junior going to do with the mule harnesses? I'll put it on mules, said Ben, smiling and holding his drink. Coltrane grinned. He didn't mention that, eh? No, sir, he bought enough provisions to feed the Army of the Potomac. I figure they're making some kind of cattle deal, and they'll ship their heads of cattle back on the train. When are they going? Well, Junior said right away, and then the old man comes in, pays the bill, and pulls him outside. They both went into the bank. Business at the bank? asked Coltrane. Ringold had drawn in more men at the table and was already dealing cards. man knows how to play goddamn poker, said Orville, and he could shoot. He shot somebody? asked Coltrane. Oh, not that I know of. Last night, I should say early this morning. Even Albie had left. Reingold bet a couple of punches he could turn and shoot the necks off two beer bottles at 50 feet. Coltrane raised his brows. Did he? Orville leaned closer. Not once, Jimmy. Twice. Pretty good shooting for a railroad vice president. Rheingold's the nicest gentleman until he's drunk. Coltrane shrugged his shoulders. How many times have you seen that in a man, Orville? Part of the job, Jim, part of the job. Ben leaned toward Coltrane. Sam Turner paid me in coins, 75 Morgan dollars. Hefty amount for an afternoon shopping. They ever shopped like that before? Like I say, only on their trips back east. Elby's discordant singing made Coltrane wince. Elby sounds like a sick cow. The border, and then he goes into town at the end of the week and all his dust on the bender. Elby, his wispy gray hair askew, staggered back to the bar. "'Them was hard days,' said Elby. "'All they grisly flats and that whiskey diggin's.' "'Sounds like you survived the rush, Elby,' said Coltrane. "'I thought you were supposed to be watching the town.' "Why, well, I just let Levi, <laughs> I let Levi watch the town. "'Fella needs a song and drink. "'I have to drink, and i I'm worried about Jake and the engine. "'And all them Mexicans are killers!' "'Elby's breath was worse than the singing.' Coltrane brushed his hand through the air. Jake can take care of himself. So can Estrada, said Elby as he caught sight of Rheingold at the table. Well, there he is, the all-important Rheingold. Why the hell isn't he out there looking for the silver, letting Jake risk his life? He does look like quite the gambler. Elby looked over at Orville. Orville, give me some gin. Elby, where's your money? Well, put it on the marshal's tab! Orville twisted his wax mustache and wiped the counter. Hell, I ain't doing that to Jake anymore. Oh, Jake always lets me drink on his tab! Well, he didn't tell me nothing when he left. Elby looked at Coltrane like a dog wanting food. Elby, I know what you're thinking, and forget it. Maybe the magnificent Mr. Rangel can spot me a few rounds, he said, falling back from the stool, but he remained on his feet. Elby gripped his guns and took large strides across the saloon floor. With a half-smile, Orville peered over his shoulders. He's going to get himself into trouble. Elby approached the gambling table and Coltrane raised his brows at Orville. Thanks for that information, Orville. I'm returning to the hotel. Orville pretended to salute him. Across the room, Albie babbled incessantly, sticking his face near Reingold's cards. Reingold's furrowed brow and pursed lips indicated his annoyance. His eyes shifted, and he finally set his cards face down on the felt table. He drew a pearl-handled colt fast enough to take notice. He pointed it at Albie's gut. Coltrane heard the words across the noisy saloon. Get the hell out of here, old man! Coltrane rushed over to Elby. Best uh, you not bother Mr. Rheingold while he's playing cards. Come on. Well, he was going to shoot me, Jim. He dragged Elby toward the cafe doors as Rheingold put the gun back in his holster. Well, I can't say that I blame him. All I wanted was drinking money. Coltrane looked at Orville, but Orville spoke first. I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking I don't ever recall ever seeing a man draw that fast on anyone. Coltrane shared Jake's feeling about Rheingold. His sly look and the timing of his visit west were too coincidental. Coltrane had the odd notion the Turners were in the middle of the heist because of the Turner purchases in Ben Wiggins's general store. Maybe it was time to take a ride out later to the Turner Ranch. Soaring Birds Pinto gingerly followed Jake down the narrow ledge above the canyon. The smooth red rocks hid any wagon tracks, but the disrupted sand and the moved stones, along with the scraped surface, indicated recent travel down the trail. A stiff breeze up from the canyon walls flailed his face. The river's roar grew louder as they reached level ground. Jake peered toward the distant sandbars and trees spread under the lofty sandstone walls. Whether Rheingold had told the truth about Estrada, depended on whether Jake found the wagon ruts along the softer sandbar's ground. He regretted leaving Rheingold behind. From the moment Jake saw him get off the stage last night at the coal train, he distrusted the railroad man, and his two army men angered him even more. Jake pinched some tobacco from his side pouch into a paper wrapper and rolled the paper over the mixture. He grinned as Pam Grayson in the tub crossed his mind. He struck a wood match against his belt. Menawa moved along a level stretch above a long string of rounded boulders fallen into the canyon. Pam was like homemade still whiskey, potent, effective, and irresistible, but potentially deadly and a guaranteed hangover. As much as he wished he could meet up with her again at the coal train, he kept thinking Rheingold might have set him up. Rheingold had no reason to be talking with Pam. None of that mattered now. Water sloshed over the fallen rocks, gushing with a force he did not understand. But like other things he did not understand in his life, he only knew the effect. The river could kill a man if he fell into the surge. When you're dead, you're dead. Soaring Bird continued along the gritty dirt. His Shoshone friend's voice echoed through the canyon walls. McBride! Wagon tracks! Maybe Ringo was telling the truth! Looks like we're going to be heading south. Soaring Bird off his pony studied the red gritty soil furrowed with ruts. Deeper ruts. Well, it could be the moist soil. No, McBride, the wagons are heavier. They may have moved silver into fewer wagons for the journey south. Even better. Means a slower time for them horses to be pulling the silver. We got to move quick. They've got at least 18 hours on us. He knew his time with Pam had caused the delay, but he had no regrets. Agreed. Soaring Bird flipped his body onto his horse. We should travel by night, cut down the distance, and there is something else. Well, what's that? I will help you track the silver, but I have seen too much killing, McBride. Jake nodded. I understand your people's pain. And your people, Soaring Bird, how long have they been here? Where did they come from? Let us find the silver. Then I will tell you where my people came from. It will be a long ride. The shadows cut a definite diagonal line along the canyon rocks. Jake squinted. The ledge followed the canyon as it widened in the sun's blaze. Menawag galloped toward the open ground along the riverbank. The river looped and meandered through the sand and around the tree clumps ahead. He pulled on the reins and slowed. More wagon tracks laced the moist dirt down to the trees. Menawa trotted along the sandbar. Beyond the long stretch of trees, the canyon walls tapered as the river veered south. In the late afternoon sun, the compacted red dirt blended into the developing purple horizon. Darker slopes and sun-top hills were visible to the south. The milky blue Panamint Mountains materialized on the southwestern horizon. Near sunset, he brought Menawa to drink at the river's edge. The horses would not be as fresh if they traveled by night, but he needed to gain on Estrada. Menawa dipped his head and drank the fresh water as Jake refilled his own canteen. He cupped the cool water over his bristly face and wiped the droplets off his cheeks. But as he looked back into the canyon, he had a bad feeling. Someone's out here. Did you see someone? asked Soaring Bird. Just a feeling. He stood and grabbed his Remington. For a few minutes, he scanned the canyon rocks before he climbed back in the saddle. Menowar backed away from the water onto the dirt. Jake fanned the rifle along the towering walls. He wondered whether Estrada had posted a guard in the rear while the wagons carried that silver away. We got to ride all night to get near Estrada. Soaring Bird nodded and Jake looked ahead. The river emptied across level ground, leading out of the canyon and across a wide stretch of dry prairie covered by the late afternoon orange light. They followed the tracks out of the canyon and onto the southern trail. Deeper, fresh wagon wheel ruts were imprinted through the mesquite and the heavily compressed trail. The evening stars appeared over the flat desert. Jake clung to his rifle and kept looking back along the darkening rocks towards arroyo. What I wanted to do was take the people from the beginning of the story with all their quirks of personality and send them into this story back in 1882. It's like taking the people on Dorothy's farm in the Wizard of Oz and bringing them into the land of Oz. Good old John Reingold. Jake says he's seen him before and I'm sure he has. He says he works for the railroad, but Jake is just very suspicious of this guy because he's just too slick. He comes up with the story that one Mexican bandit has overpowered the army. Jake ends up heading south, following the wagon ruts down toward Yubahebe Crater, the other end of Death Valley, a crater which I have climbed down. It's not that deep, but it is a little bit steep. It's mostly all volcanic grit and dirt, and you go right down to the bottom, and you can go back up again. And I wanted to put Jake in a position. A lot of time, you see these uh, stereotypical type of sheriffs in the Old West on TV in the 1950s, and they just do the right thing every time and go where they're supposed to go and just 100% pure. Well, Jake McBride is not 100% pure. People don't always act like little goody-two-shoes. What's goody-two-shoes? It was published in 1765. It was called The History of Little Goody-Two-Shoes. So Jake is diverted by the voluptuous and quite sensual Pam Grayson into a hotel room in the coal train, while Rheingold and his buddies are preparing to do something with that silver. I'd like to be sitting on the front porch of the coal train, looking out over the small western town in Nevada as the horses come in. But then again, it's time to mount up and get on that horse and get out of town, head south. This is Robert B. Fitton. Join me next week for another episode of When You're Dead, You're Dead on Fittin' on the Air. Yeehaw! All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittinbooks.com, or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at Pizzazz dash pizzazz dot com.